This time on Watchers of Tomorrow. Tomorrow on Watchers of Tomorrow. Nine weeks ago on Watchers of Tomorrow. 300 years from now on Watchers of Tomorrow. everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review, critique, whatever show where we put the humanities back into science fiction. I am Gepwin and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi. And since this is our special end of slash between season show, we have special guest star Jesse Gender, who you should go check out on YouTube. Hi, nice to see you, or meet you, or whatever whatever we're doing in this ethereal internet space. <laughs> Disembodied voices. Yes. Yeah, if we say see each other, people imagine that we like sit around a table with microphones like professionals. I mean, is that not what we're doing? I'm totally in the room with you right now. That's 100% happening. <laughs> yes, and that room is on the moon as well. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> it's great. My, uh, my coffee's just floating around. It's, uh, it's fun. Now, if you have seen jesse's videos you will know that they are very star trek related which unfortunately we don't get a chance to do since we do star trek in the main series so dang it this time we're covering a movie that jesse picked and i'm sorry that i uh <laughs> made you guys sit through this three hour uh this three hour epic <laughs> no it's a, it's an it's an epic that i enjoy yeah, so yeah. I, I was okay with that well, each bit of it is only about half an hour because it's six different things so technically it's just like six half-hour tv shows yeah that you're just like uh skipping through like you have uh, analysis paralysis and not sure which one you want to watch so so it's basically me anytime i open up amazon prime so <laughs> yeah it's like it's just recreating the netflix experience you know huh, i'm not sure uh, well, as long as it has tom hanks in it i guess i'm probably fine <laughs> hey, all of these do <laughs> Those people probably already read the episode description. We are covering the 2012 movie Cloud Atlas, which is a Woo. beast of a thing. <laughs> yes, it's a, like I said, it's a particular one. I, I know you guys, uh, when you guys asked me to do this, you said pick your favorite sci-fi movie. And I'm not 100% sure if this is my favorite, but it's, it's definitely up there because I find it so particularly fascinating and... Uh, I also think, and we'll get into this in the discussion, but I also just think it, it resonates with me as a Star Trek fan in just a lot of ways. And uh, so that's why I, I thought it'd be great to discuss here. I know I recognized some similar messaging going through, which we can talk about. It was a really interesting pick, like all of the Wachowskis movies. Yeah, no, they're... they're... they're I, I particularly love the Wachowskis so much. I mean, not just because, I mean... For me, as a trans person, it's always awesome to see, like, yes, there's trans people out there uh, directing and making stories and doing, like, big-budget stuff. So that's that's something that I that I have an affinity for. But I also just, uh, a lot of the movies are, uh, just speak to me about, they're always talking about connection and uh, finding humanity in others and cutting across differences. Uh, like, Sense8, uh, which is one of my favorite TV shows, too, does that. And so I just, I just particularly just love these filmmakers in all of their... Uh, successes and their flaws and they they certainly have had many many flaws over the years but uh but i even but even the flaws are like interesting they're not just bad like even the second two matrix movies are you know not great but they're fascinating pieces of work so well one of my favorite sci-fi movies is their speed racer so yeah no i'm right underrated. there yeah. very underrated film that's been ages since i've seen that 
Hey, Kevin, I'm going to add that to my list. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely worth it. As we've been alluding to, this film was both written and directed by the Wachowski sisters and Tom Tyker. So three directors, three writers and three directors. And uh, you, you mentioned Sense8. Uh, you know, that's something they've worked on together as well. Yep, yep. Uh, I think Lana, they both worked on it. I think it kind of ended with just Lana working on it towards the, the end of that series. But uh, they definitely had a hand in that. And like I alluded to, that series is... Uh, Easily, probably in my top 10 uh, science fiction shows of all time and top shows of all time. So, I still haven't gotten a chance to see that one. I need to get around to it. I've not seen the entirety of it myself, but I, you know, what I, you know, I saw a span of episodes and I was like, wow, this is fantastic. Why is there not more stuff out there like this? This is great. I know. It's, it's just, it's so good. We, there's a whole episode we could do just on, on Sense8 if we ever get the chance. We might have to eventually. All right. It's on my list as well. So. This particular movie was based on a 2004 novel by the same name by David Mitchell, which I have not read. I understand a lot of people prefer the novelization based on the reviews I was watching, but I don't have a point of comparison. Neither do I, so works for me. <laughs> you know, and uh, I've not read it either, but I've seen uh, folks talking about the you know, comparing it to the movie and such before, so I guess I might have some inside there <laughs> and then that book was itself inspired by a piece of music by the same name which is some kind of experimental atonal half noise music that's kind of interesting if you look it up on youtube some sort of music concrete yeah sort of now i'm just going to list out all of the main actors in this movie because it is a star-studded cast but Listing them with characters doesn't make any sense because each of them plays at least three different roles. Yeah, I was I was joking before we started this with you guys. I'm like, I'm very sorry for you having to do the synopsis on this thing. <laughs> so this movie stars in no particular order. Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, Jim Broadbent, Hugo Weaving, Jim Sturgis, Dona Bay, Ben Winshaw... James Darcy, I'm losing steam here. <laughs> <laughs> Zhao Zhen, Keith David, David Gatsy, Susan Sarandon, and Hugh Grant. There's so and many. How much other people? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> as well as various extras and whatnot. These are the main people you will have you know heard of. And I think this was also be right before uh, to pick out one in particular. Ben Winshaw became really really big. So because uh, I think he didn't become big until. Uh, I think around the time he was in Skyfall, James Bond. So it was cool to see, like, oh yeah, hey, Ben Winshaw, look at you. He had, he had one of the best um, story arcs in this one. Yeah, no, he his is the most tragic and uh, and and really kind of the one that kind of connects all of them in a lot of ways. So I mean, they're all connected, but his is kind of echoes across uh, all the stories and with his music. So we're going to uh, jump into the synopsis here. I'm going to make a note that as presented in both the novel and the film. This is six different stories that intercut with each other at various points, which would be impossible to summarize in that context without becoming so super confusing. So I have decided to split them up and just run through them in chronological order. So we're starting with the oldest story in the timeline and going forth into the future timeline by the end. It might also be worth noting that like multiple actors play multiple characters throughout the film uh, that w does play like an important role in like how you read this but it's just that's going to be so difficult to 
Yeah, well, that's kind of my other point, is each story I'm going to re-summarize which actors are playing the main characters, and any actor that shows up as a side character, I'm just going to use the actor's name instead of the character name, because I feel like that makes more sense, because the the actor that plays the character is more important than the character themselves in a lot of these side characters. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's a connection going on throughout all of this. All right, if we're ready to go... Let's do it. So, so where are we starting, Gepwin? We start with old Tom Hanks against a starry sky. Winds like these, full of voices, your ancestors howling at you to bring you the stories. Little on the nose, but... I know, but I, I gotta say, uh, that opening... I, You know, there's always um, moments for me when... I, I always appreciate a moment when you get like this feeling of like, mystery and intensity with cinema, and just that, that opening always gets me. I'm like, oh, I just... I feel so, like engrossed and it feels very much like oh i'm about to like sit around a campfire and and hear a story and it just that opening just it it gives me chills every time i see it it is a very nice one i will say i don't want to dwell too much on some of the cinematic flaws of the movie because i do feel like it had a few missteps but one Mm, thing that did get me a little bit is all of the future speak is this weird sort of half english nonsense that kind of took me out of some of the actual good dialogue they had in those scenes and the intro uses that as well, and it can be a little hard to follow the first time. Yeah, it gets better the more you go. And uh, speaking on that, since uh, uh, we probably won't get to it later, is uh, the one problem I have with that is it's kind of like a very one-to-one language change. It's like, oh, this means this, or uh, the, like the, uh, I'm trying to remember one of the words, uh, the true true. And it's just like, it's just the word true. Uh, you know, <laughs> and it's, 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 they don't really have dive into much of the, how the language would have actually changed over the eons. It's just sort of like, eh, yeah, this word is now this word. Uh, so there's no like etymology there. Yeah, it's a very beyond Thunderdome, the long, long ago kind of English. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a bit disappointing, but, you know, roll with it, I guess. Yeah. I'm having a little bit of, uh, I guess, flashbacks to uh, Clockwork Orange and some of the way they uh, spoke in that. Yes, that one, uh, that at least is a bit forgivable there because it's, uh, that's like slang. So slang, I can feel like being one-to-one, whereas this is like supposedly an entire culture and language that's built up around, you know, the, however long it's been since the fall of humanity, our human civilization. And it's still just sort of like, eh, they just, you know, they say words slightly differently. It's not like revealing too much culture. So it's like, eh, they're primitive. So they say words weird. Now, oh, that's way in the future. Our first story <laughs> begins in 1849, starring Tom Hanks as Dr. Henry Goose, Jim Sturgis as Adam Ewing, and Jim Broadbent as Captain Molyneux, and David Geisy as Atua. This is my favorite name in the entire thing. Yes. <laughs> it's a good name. Same here. Yeah. <laughs> Though my autocorrect decided to keep changing it to Otto. I know, it was horrible. Autocorrect on this is awful. Adam Ewig meets one Dr. Goose sifting through sand on a beach. He's apparently hunting teeth because he believes this used to be a cannibal feeding ground and that he can sell these teeth for a good price per half pound. They're eaten alive, but now they're being chewed by the modern world. (laughs) Adam is in the Pacific to collect a probably slave-related, though it is never explicitly said, contract from Hugh Grant on behalf of his father-in-law, Hugo Weaving. They discuss Hugo Weaving's writings 
over dinner as they concern the order of things, namely why all the white dudes get to enjoy a nice meal while Keith, David, and a few other black men in tattoo makeup are very happy to serve them their meals. Yeah. There's a there's a great line in this scene that I actually wrote down that I love um, that uh, the main character we're following through. What, what, what's his name? The, uh, the guy who gets sick? I'm blanking. Uh, Adam. Adam? Adam, yeah. He has a great line that says, uh, if God created the world, uh, it, the hard part is figuring out what we can change and what remains sacred and invaluable. And then we immediately cut to like a, like a slave uh, like punishment, uh, like whipping. And it was just a, a great way to sort of set off the, the themes of this, this movie about like talking about how we sort of see these systems of oppression as you know, just part of the quote unquote natural order of things. And really, you just see throughout all the stories, like how that those systems of oppression just change and manipulate over time, uh, but how people just take them as, you know, as sacred at the time. And I just thought that that was just a great, great line to sort of set us up for this theme in, in this scene. Later on, they take a tour of some fields where they see a slave played by David Gatsy. This is at Tua, as we will find out later being whipped. This shock and the heat causes Adam to pass out. Later, he is being attended to by Dr. Goose, where we see a birthmark on Adam's chest shaped like a comet. This becomes important later. Yes. Goose tells him that he has contracted a parasite known as the Polynesian worm, but luckily he is one of the few doctors around who knows how to treat this illness and begins giving him medication. How convenient. (laughs) Adam and Goose take a ship back to San Francisco, where Adam is quarantined below deck despite his condition being non-contagious. There, he finds that he has unintentional cabin mates with Atua, the slave that he saw being whipped a second ago, who has stowed away on the ship in order to escape his enslavement. Adam is not very happy about this to begin with, but says he will help Atua since he knows that turning him in would be the same thing as having him killed, which is a point made rather dramatically by Atua holding a knife to his own throat during the conversation. I'm with Atua here, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you gotta make a point come across, you know, it's, it's a good way to do it. Adam begins sneaking Atua food from his meals with the captain and doctor. After he learns that Atua used to be an accomplished sailor, he decides to tell the captain about him, hoping that his worth as a crewman will prevent him from being punished as a stowaway. The captain agrees to test Atua by having him single-handedly lower the mainsails, which is actually something that's almost impossible to do on old-timey sailing ships. That this was apparently a trick as he orders his first mate to pull out a gun and prepare to shoot him while he's climbing the mast. But Adam, upset at this, knocks the gun aside, saving Atua's life just as he lowers the sails by swinging down to the deck, which is a feat so impressive the captain decides to immediately take him on as a crew member. It's a complete 180 there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a good scene, but it's like, shoot him. Oh, never mind. Wait, he's better than all the other crew combined. Huh. <laughs> I guess we can keep him. Yeah, and I'm also like, aren't you worried you're going to like shoot your really expensive like rigging there? Yeah, or you know, hit the wrong bit and <laughs> yeah, putting holes in your sails like that—it's not going to be yeah. good. <laughs> I feel like they just yeah, just shoot him on the ground; it'd be much less dangerous to your ship. Atua continues his friendship with Adam, trying to nurse him back to health as it becomes increasingly obvious that Doctor Goose may not have his best interests at heart, as he is continuously stealing from him and coveting a key that he wears around his neck. You mean the dude we met holding a bunch of teeth is not a good guy? What? I'm so shocked. <laughs> but he's played by Tom Hanks, who's the nicest man in Hollywood. 
This is true. Subverting expectations. <laughs> he's like literally pulling the buttons off his shirt and then like little jeweled things. So he's like, mm, I'm going to pocket this. Yes. One stormy night, Atua finds Goose finally trying to finish off a very, very ill Adam. They struggle for a bit, and just before Goose can finally kill off Adam and steal his remaining belongings, Atua hits him over the head with the very gold-filled chest that he has been coveting, saving Adam's life. Symbolism. Yes. Literally beating you over the head with symbolism. Atua helps Adam return home to his wife and family, and Adam decides to confront his father-in-law, burning the slave contract in front of him before saying that he was saved by an escaped slave and he cannot be part of this anymore, and in fact, he and his wife are moving to the East Coast to become abolitionists. Hooray! No more power. You have no more power over us. We're out of here. We're going to change the world. Ha! This angers Daddy Hugo Weaving, who warns them that trying to upend the natural order will do nothing but cause them pain and horribleness, and anything they do will be nothing more than a drop in the ocean. With Adam replying, well, what is the ocean but a multitude of drops? The theme. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which also, this does happen near the end of the movie, even though this is just the end of our first synopsis bit, so. No, they, they all kind of, yeah, they, they, all these, like, nice thematic bits just coalesce in that, that really end, powerful ending montage that this is a, but a drop in the, the sea of. If my metaphor worked there, <laughs> yeah, we, if we, you know, you know, you know, I'm going to go go join up with those who are working for the same goal, and we're going to going to change the world. Just you, you know, just you see here. Now, if I, I recall, this is also at the end of the book as well. So, yeah, very. Next, we are 1936 with Ben Winshaw playing Robert Forbisher, James Darcy playing Rufus Sixsmith, and Jim Broadbent playing Vivian Ayers. We begin with voiceover from Frobisher reading letters that he's written to his lover Sixsmith. We see a comet-shaped birthmark on Frobisher's quite naked body as he and Sixsmith are woken up by men hammering on their hotel room door. This causes Frobisher to dress and dismiss himself via the window. As one does. He announces through his letters his intention to ingratiate himself with one Vivian Ayers, who is a genius composer who, because of illness, has not yet been composing his you know, great English works or whatnot. He plans to become his assistant and then become a famous composer in his own right to basically shove it in the face of his dismissive father. I can relate. Yes. <laughs> By way of an interview, Vivian dum-de-dums a tune that he's been thinking over to Forbisher so that he can write it down, but when asked to play it back, it sounds awful. A little bit, yeah. So, and especially because he gives he gives Forbisher like all of, what, five seconds to, to get it down to? Yeah, and, like, and he explicitly asks for like key signatures and, you know, uh, you know what, what's, our, what's our timing here? What, I need details. <laughs> I also don't know necessarily... Um, music well enough but it sounds like he's playing it like exactly as it was dum de dummed yeah no he he is he does does a really good job given like the like the minuscule amount of time that he's given obviously he doesn't appreciate any of that work he's like ah get him out of my sight yes he's about to dismiss him when Frobisher suddenly starts playing a very beautiful tune on the piano that vivian declares to have been the melody that he meant all along of course, yes, no, yes. Yes, that was exactly what I was thinking, yes, for sure. Yes, of course, yes, no, that's perfect. Forbisher spends the next while in good spirits, helping Vivian write his music while also working on his own compositions and reading the published journals of Adam Ewig. 
Wait a moment, that was the guy we saw last time. Yes. Connection, yes. <laughs> he and Vivian present their work, which they are calling Eternal Recurrence, because we're still being subtle, <laughs> to a German composer. This is a, a mostly an excuse for Hugo Weaving to show up as a evil German dude, and also to enforce that Furbisher is fairly ignorant of the political situation leading up to World War II. Remember, we're in the 30s. And of course, Hugo Weaving, just because it's a Wachowski film, Hugo Weaving has to be uh, the, the bad guy. Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, there's a couple actors that are bad guys throughout the entire thing. Yes, but Hugo Weaving stays consistently uh, a jerk throughout the entire thing. I think Tom Hanks goes from like good to bad. Other characters change allegiances. Uh, but Hugo Weaving is, is always a jerk. So <laughs> there's, there's one consistent thing in the world. Hugo Weaving is always the main villain, and then Hugh Grant is always like a side villain. Exactly. When he shows up. If there's one constant in this entire universe, it's that Hugo Weaving is evil. And Hugh Grant is slightly less evil. <laughs> Hugh Grant is more used car salesman evil. Uh, you know, Hugo Weaving's more shoot-in-the-face evil. Exactly. Sometime later, Vivian hears Forbisher playing his own original work that he calls the Cloud Atlas Sextet. More subtle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they talk about this beautiful composition and what it means to Frobisher until Frobisher misreads the situation and moves in to kiss Vivian, which makes Vivian laugh in his face, prompting him to the revelation that Vivian looked into Frobisher's past, knows that he has a very sordid reputation, and decided that because of this he can basically blackmail him into stealing his obvious talents for himself, holding him hostage with a threat to ruin any chance he would have at a musical career. And again, going back to what we were talking about in the last story, here's the, the system of oppression of this story about like how you know, homosexual people are, uh, and queer people just in general are often sort of having to hide themselves. And when they, they do, they run, when they do reveal themselves and come out of the closet, especially at uh, this time that this story takes place, it's a very dangerous act. Uh, and, and then it's just immediately rebuked. And then not only is he rebuked, which would you know, be, be painful enough, but you know, it happens. Uh, it's immediately turned around on him and says, like, no, I'm going to essentially, you know, just make you my slave in a, in a way and just can totally ruin your career based around this this one aspect of yourself. And it's just such a it's just a complete 180 and a, and a completely painful, uh, painful turn of events that uh, as for me as a queer person, that 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 scene in particular just always just guts me. It's also really well presented in this one, because it's not only a turnaround, it's a I always knew this, and this thing that you thought was like a good working relationship has actually been me manipulating you for my own ends the entire time. And the dialogue, uh, you know, leading up to this particular moment, while he's sort of like presenting Cloud Atlas uh, uh, sextet there, you know, uh, Vivian's like, yeah, we should, you know, this is obviously a good collaboration between us. Yeah, my name should be on this. Hmm, yes. It's like, hmm, yeah, I see where this is going. And there's even an element, too, that you, you could read it, and I always go back and forth every time I watch this about whether or not this is actually the case, but you could read it that he's, uh, the, the doctor is actually, is actually having feelings for Frobisher, but, uh, but has, you know, suppressed it for so long that he's sort of very closeted and, and, you know, has a lot of internalized homophobia. And so when that moment does happen, he, he just sort of instantly rejects both Frobisham, but also that aspect of himself, uh, in order to be like, no, this is this is more important to me. You know, this this power and this uh, being successful is is really what what matters more to me in this era. 
Um, so you, you could you could read it as just a computer manipulation right from the top. Uh, but I um I there's an element of me that wants to read it as like there's a lot of internalized homophobia on uh, the good doctor's part. I'd have to agree because he's only you know basically you know uh, laying out what the you know the rules are for, uh, from this point on forward at this point when he actually you know had already done the research uh, on Robert before this point but had been you know not not making it explicit. And also there should be a a mention too uh, that the the Cloud Atlas sex test sex test is actually part of the score throughout the entire film and cuts across uh cross across the entire work yes they use it they bring it up several times both in uh both in diegetic and non-diegetic instances through the rest of the movie orvisher is very obviously frustrated by the fact that he's now basically enslaved to vivian and starts to plan an escape so that he can work on his masterpiece by himself uh, when packing, he decides to grab Vivian's old service pistol for reasons that he says he doesn't even know. Vivian interrupts his packing and tries to steal the Cloud Atlas, and in the scuffle over the music, Forbisher shoots him, as it turns out very non-fatally, but now he is a wanted man. Forbisher moves into a seedy hotel to finish his work, uh, continuing to write to Sixsmith, who decides that he needs to go into London to find him. Frobisher finishes his masterpiece and even does see Sixsmith looking for him in a uh, monument that he says he frequents, but decides to hide himself, instead getting one last look before returning to his hotel to finish his work and shooting himself just before Sixsmith finds him in his room. That, that, whole, that whole sequence uh, is another moment that just... Th- this story in particular, just because you know I am part of the queer community, that, that, that whole sequence just always gut punches me just that moment where he says you know i don't think it was a coincidence that i saw you first and that's why uh you know he he was able to just get a last look at him before he went and killed himself just it's 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 such a beautiful moment and yet such a painful and and tragic moment because you just wish that it had turned out any other way you're just like i wish you had seen each other because i feel like if that had happened you wouldn't have wouldn't have killed yourself um and it's just I, I don't know, it's just, it's such a, a painful, painful moment for myself and, and just having known, known that feeling uh, myself personally and then also knowing a lot of friends who, not just in the queer community but elsewhere, but especially within the queer community who have, have gone through similar things and sometimes not always won, won that battle uh, is, uh, it's a particularly powerful, p- powerful scene that I think is very beautifully portrayed but just so so painfully portrayed here i have to agree this storyline and love affair is really kind of the emotional core of the entire narrative arc of all of the movie yeah i'm a little choked up right now don't worry about me next we are in 1973 with halle berry playing lurisa ray and james darcy again playing Sixsmith, but this time much older which I think is the only character who uh, appears in multiple stories. I yeah, believe. it's the only direct. It's the only time that you you get close enough that one of the characters is still alive. Louisa Ray is fleeing a party where she was apparently interviewing a rather boorish man who will not leave her alone as she runs to the elevator. Uh, once in the elevator, it stops due to a power outage, and she winds up trapped with Rufus Sixsmith. After a few hours and it getting hot, Louisa removes her jacket to deal with the heat, and Sixsmith sees that she has a very familiar comet-shaped birthmark on her shoulder. 
So another trend continues. Mm-hmm, yes. It's almost as if there's thematic connection between the stories, yes. <laughs> this connection prompts him to ask if she would be willing to take on a story, even if it meant the possibility of going to prison to protect her sources. The elevator starts moving again and they part ways, but not before Louisa gives Sixsmith her card in case he needs anything. Back when people needed to give each other phone numbers. Oh, you know, people still just hand out business cards. It just, you know, it has their Twitch channel on it now. Exactly. <laughs> if you need to reach out to me about your uh, government secrets, please reach me at my Twitch, you know. <laughs> Sixmas spends the night reading old letters from Frobisher and watching Hugh Grant on TV talking about America's nuclear future. This seems to make up his mind about the need to call Louisa and asks for help. She arrives and is invited up to his room just before Hugo Weaving shows up to shoot Sixsmith in the head, planting the gun to make it appear as a suicide and taking a bundle of papers. Ain't Hugo Weaving? Not again. <laughs> Always with the evil, Hugo. <laughs> when no one answers the door, Louisa gets a manager to let her in and they find the body along with the bundle of Forbisher's old letters, which she takes. After a brief aside to track down Frobisher's music to connect more stuff up, she decides to check the nuclear plant that Sixsmith was associated with, and she gets a tour from obviously evil CEO Hugh Grant. Dang it, Hugh Grant! <laughs> <laughs> is it just the H? Is it having an H at the top of your name? I guess Halle Berry isn't evil. I don't know. As soon as Louisa is left alone for a moment, she finds Sixsmith's old office and starts poking around, where she is discovered by Tom Hanks, nuclear physicist. And finally playing an actually friendly human. Instead of turning her in, he feels an unexplicable connection to this woman that he's never met before. And they talk about Carlos Castaneda and mystical past life stuff that he says he doesn't believe in, except for this unexplained feeling that he somehow knows her. Like maybe we met in a past life. He decides to give her the report that Sixsmith wanted to give her, even though he knows that it is probably going to turn out badly for him one way or another. Ah, I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> Tom Hanks gets on a plane, and Hugo Weaving <laughs> follows Louisa's car. Yeah, getting on a plane's fine. Everything's going to be great. He's just going uh, to Korea, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be totally okay. Hugo Weaving rams Louisa's car off of a bridge at the same time that a bomb goes off in Tom Hanks' plane. No! Oh, no! <laughs> Who would have thought? Louisa comes to underwater, but makes it home understandably freaked out and with all of her evidence at the bottom of a river. Back at home, she is greeted by Keith David, who is the head of security at the nuclear plant, but is here to help her because apparently her father saved his life back when he was in the army. He reveals that the oil lobby is actually the one who set up this nuclear power plant, and they want it to intentionally fail, causing a disaster that will ruin the reputation of nuclear power as an alternative to oil in America. You know, I feel like it's, it's a very evil plot that feels outside of the realm of possibility, but then I think about it, I'm like, no, no, I could, I could sadly see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except I think they just went through and created a bunch of astroturfed environmental organizations to ruin nuclear power anyway, which was a lot cheaper. Yes, and, and less, you know, overtly like, bwaha, villainous. <laughs> it's more, more subtle, hee-hee-hee-hee, <laughs> villain. E exactly. And this oil company is the one who has hired Hugo Weaving to kill anyone who finds out about this, including now the two of them. I guess we're going to see him again. Yes, they have a plan to lure Hugo Weaving out using Louisa as bait. Uh, they 
smash into his car as he's trying to kill her, but this does not go very smoothly and turns into a large chase through the back alleys and industrial buildings of San Francisco. I do have to say that that, that is such an incredibly coincidental plan. It's just like, all right, you're going to walk out in the street, and I'm going to have my car just off to the side here, and we know he's going to try and run you over right here instead of, you know, shooting you from, like, fairly far away. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very you know uh, 70s-ish sort of action movie thing going on here, and it just kind of works. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't have any problem with it in the film. It's just funny to just think about it outside of that. During this chase scene, Weaving shoots a worker's dog because she can't speak English, yells a slur at her, and then runs away. Because Hugo Weaving is evil. <laughs> Later, he has Louisa and Keith David cornered, but he's knocked out and then killed by the woman whose dog he shot earlier. Take that, Hugo Weaving, <laughs> you dog killer. Being an evil racist gets you killed. <laughs> yeah. Hooray! If only that were always true. Now safe, Louisa exposes the conspiracy, saving countless lives, and her young, aspiring author of A Neighbor mentions how good of a book this would all make. We now have 2012 with Jim Broadbent as Timothy Cavendish, the only main character of this particular story arc. This is also our comedy aside story arc. Yes. (laughs) Very much so. Cavendish is a publisher attending a literary party with his newest published author, a London gangster type played by Tom Hanks. It makes me think like uh, echoes of... um... Oh, gosh, uh, Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's not as transformative, but it's just it's just so weird to see, like, Tom Hanks play, like, a street tough, you know? Yeah. It is just weird to have him show up with that accent and be like, Arr, I'm doing gangstery things and I'm mad at people and have tattoos on me knuckles. I went pirate <laughs> there for a second. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> very, very Tom Hanks, you know? <laughs> Tom Hanks is upset that his book is not selling well and blames a critic's negative review for its poor reputation. Hanks confronts the critic, and after an exchange, this ends with him throwing the critic off of a balcony. Wait a moment, is Tom Hanks evil again? Well, coincidentally, (laughs) Tom Hanks in interviews said this was his favorite scene of the movie. It's one of mine, too. It's it's, it's like weirdly cathartic in 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 a fun way and also sort of like, I'm not sure how well it reads nowadays with, like, the, uh, the, like, hatred of critics and, uh, news culture, but, uh, it's, it's a fun scene just to see Tom Hanks just go way over the top and just throw throw this guy over. It kind of helps that the, uh, critic is a a bit of a pompous ass through it, too, so. exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a fun scene. It, It is probably one of my favorite scenes of the movie. Now associated with a dramatic murder, Hanks' book starts flying off of the shelves, making Cavendish a great deal of money as publisher. Unfortunately, Hanks' family, equally tough-looking London gangster people, uh, give Cavendish a visit demanding that he pay them the money that he owed Hanks if he does not want to be killed. Killed or maimed a whole lot. Cavendish does not actually have this money, which eventually leads him to asking his brother, Hugh Grant, for a cash loan. Uh, This he is none too happy about because apparently this has happened a lot. Well, this well might be a little dry. Maybe you should move on to somebody else. His brother eventually does agree to give him the money, but says in the meantime he needs to go somewhere to lay low. Before before we move on, I, I do want to point out that uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, Timothy actually goes to Denholm, uh, you know, uh, Hugh Grant's character's 
uh, home and they're hanging out uh, by the pool or whatever it was. And uh, Timothy kind of glances at his wife for a moment. And it's, it's pretty clear that Denholm actually uh, notices this before he agrees to everything. Yeah, and uh, it's not as important for the story, but Ben Winshaw plays the wife, Georgette. Oh, oh yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> Just to have another actor in, in here, apparently. So. Well, I, I also liked that, um, I mean, this is something, again, because of, of who I am, but I do like the sort of cutting across, like souls cut across gender and cut across, you know, uh, is problematic as it's portrayed somewhat later in the film, a cut across like racial divides as well, and that we all have the same human soul. The, the core us, you know, the uh, is is still there, even if the trappings on the outside are varying. Exactly, it's not like we are always, you know, there's not like a male soul or female soul, just a human soul, which I I, I particularly like. And like I said, there's problems with how that's portrayed uh, in in a racial sense later on, but I, I do kind of enjoy it. Kavanagh spends his time on a train reading a novel, Half-Lives, a Louisa Ray mystery. By someone named Javier. Hmm. Wait a moment. There's a Javier in the last section. <laughs> he then recognizes that he is near a place that he spent some time in his youth with the love of his life, apparently. He goes to the house that she lived in, remembering when he was caught by her parents, which shows us his own comet-shaped birthmark. Yes, on his leg where he comically grabs a cat and gets forced out of a window, never to return. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, keeping it PC, I guess, here. Uh, or uh, PG, I sh- should say. Uh, that, that scene is uh, quite hilarious. Probably one of the two parts of the film that got at that R rating. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> In the present, he kind of creepily stalks this older woman who we assume is the same woman with what i can only assume is her new family debating whether to introduce himself and disturb this life she seems very happy with and maybe hasn't even thought of him in years but you know we're not supposed to think about that i i think yeah sh- 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 don't, don't, don't bring that up it's it's a cute moment you know a little creepy but yeah cute yeah he decides to continue on and reaches what he assumes to be the hotel that his brother sent him to. He signs in and goes to bed only to wake up to see Hugo weaving in angry female makeup, confiscating all of his belongings. Wait, Hugo weaving's a thief now? Doing uh, her best nurse ratchet impression. He slowly discovers that he is now trapped in an abusive nursing home. He tries to storm <laughs> out, but this is stopped by the uh, gardener and other staff and he's carried back to his room bodily yeah i'm kind of uh, you know uh, you know surprised that the security of this place was so light that they had to rely on the gardener to get him back inside yeah i was like yeah. all he has to do is like hop a low-hanging like fence thing there that night he sneaks out and calls his brother discovering to his dismay that his brother not only knows what's happening, but owns the facility he's now trapped in, and this is payback for him knowing that he slept with his wife a few years ago. Dun dun dun. Kavanis eventually discovers that he's not the only one in this facility who's unhappy and feels trapped, and he joins a small group of other residents who are planning an escape. Including the adorable Mr. Meeks. They hatch a plan, pretending to be a doctor working for the home care facility. They inform a family member that one of them is dead, prompting a visit. Something about a will. Once the family arrives, they steal their car, have some hilarious hijinks driving around and having to pick up one straggling member of the crew before crashing through the main gate and escaping. Come on, Mr. Beeks. I just want to see in one movie where like a car is about to crash through a gate and it just hits the gate. 
and doesn't go anywhere. It's like, ah, well. Afterward, they celebrate their escape in a Scottish pub where the patrons are watching a football match. They are found by the home's staff. They enlist the pub's help by telling them that they're being attacked by these English buggers and yeah, instilling the, the, a bar the, fight. The, the English... Yeah, the, the English team just had just beat the Scottish team as well, so they're a little antsy. They all escape, and Cavendish makes his way back to his lost love, apparently reconnecting, and the two of them finally get to be together as he writes a screenplay about his experiences. Just sort of yada yadding the <laughs> getting back together. Yeah, they just, next scene. It's like, I shall run. Next scene. They're together. All done. Yay! Yay! It's all good, yeah. <laughs> now, 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 I will point out that they didn't quite resolve the uh, stuff with the uh, the gangsters or something like that. But uh, apparently in the book, they actually do sort out what the specifics there happened. So. I will say, yeah, this storyline, um, while I do enjoy it for its sort of comedic effect, is probably the one that works the least for me. I, I think there's lots of funny bits in it, but I just I think it, it's probably the least powerful of all of them. Yeah, overall, it's a bit weak there. Especially in the in the resolution. It's just sort of like, yeah, it's all good now. Well, that was a ghastly adventure. Now everything's fine. (laughs) Now we are in 2144 with Donna Bay as Somni451, James Darcy as the Archivist, and Jim Sturgis as Haijo Chang, which is another horrible autocorrect name. Yes. I just called him Chang in my notes. Somni451 is being interviewed by a company archivist regarding an incident that she was involved in. Somni is a fabricant, which is not explicitly described in the movie, but seems to be some sort of cloned slave class of attractive young Asian women. Yeah, and we see, like, different versions of her later on in this story, so it's kind of implied that she's, you know, a clone of some sort. Your face, multiple multitudes of the same vision across... Almost like Vivian's dream from earlier. She describes a typical 24-hour cycle in her life, being woken up automatically from sleep pods with stimulants, then reporting to a futuristic cafe serving consumers, then taking a liquid meal laced with sedatives that puts her back to sleep in the pod. The only thing they have to look forward to is something called exaltation, where once a year a star is stamped on their slave collar, and after 12 of these are accumulated, they are sent to the surface to live with the consumers. Oh, that seems like a, you know, a wonderful end to things, doesn't it? Exactly, you know. I finally get to be a consumer. Yay, capitalism! Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> I, I've ascended to uh, mediocrity, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> now, this was Somni's norm until one of her sister fabricants, Yona939, obtained some sort of key that she used to wake up Somni early, where she sees Yuna being raped by their manager. Oh, dear. Yeah. Mm. He passes out because he likes to drink their liquid supplement stuff, and Yuna shows Somni a video player that she found in The Lost and Found. It plays a clip from a movie starring Tom Hanks playing Cavendish storming out of the nursing home. Wait a moment, this is the ghastly uh, ordeal of uh, Timothy Cavendish. I will not be subjected to criminal abuse. Later on in the restaurant, a customer humiliates Yuna, uh, which she then hits him for, quotes the end of the movie. I will not be subjected to criminal abuse. Sorry, I just gotta say it a billion times in honor of the film. Excellent. 
She grabs a little girl's remote control and runs to the elevator, but before it gets there, the boss uses a remote control to detonate her slave collar, blowing up her carotid artery and killing her kind of painfully. Ooh, fun. Sometime later, Somnia wakes early again to find a man standing over the corpse of the manager. This is Haicho Chang, and he is there to take her away with him. Well, at least that jerk face is not out of the picture. I mean, I always love it when just a guy just randomly appears and sweeps me away. <laughs> that was also Hugh Grant, for people paying attention to which evil character he is. <laughs> he's, the, he's the one on the floor now. <laughs> Sami has her slave collar removed, revealing a comet-shaped birthmark. And Haicho takes her to an apartment building where she studies, learning about the world she was not allowed to know, and finally getting to see the rest of the movie about Cavendish and his nursing home adventures as well as reading the works of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Something like that. Do you think she had uh, the same reaction we did to the end of the movie? It's like, oh, well, that, that was decent, but uh, had a disappointing end there. Maybe. <laughs> Apparently this is the first movie she's ever seen, so... Yeah, yeah the, bar, the bar is low, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that was the best thing ever. Uh, show me other movies, please. Um... Did you like that one? Yeah. Um, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that I'm butchering his name because I looked up a pronunciation ages ago, but Alexander's work is quoted many times through the story and seems to be a central thematic influence for this movie overall. It wouldn't be a Wachowski film without uh, philosophy. Sony's time in this apartment is cut short by the authorities finding them. Haicho uses a futuristic expanding bridge thing which this is a very specific type of technology kind of reminds me of like this is one of those random gadgets that james bond just sort of has it's like this makes no sense why you'd have it but it'll come important at this one plot point <laughs> later so here it's like ben, ben winshaw just appears as q <laughs> i show uses his action movie skills to kill several of their attackers before being shot off the bridge and falling out of sight Somni is taken to a cell where she is pontificated at by evil Asian Hugo Weaving, who mentions the natural of order of things. There it is. Damn it, Hugo Weaving. She is eventually taken away by more guards, who inexplicably start shooting each other, revealing that one of them is actually Haicho. Hooray! You're not dead. Wait, how'd you survive? You fell off like a building, like a skyscraper. What? what? Yeah, because plot. This results in more action-heavy escape stuff until he finally gets her to Resistance headquarters and meets their leader, Keith David, in some sort of makeup. Yes. <laughs> Discussion for later. I'm not even sure what they're trying to do with that one. Yeah, Honestly. Yeah, I was just like, you're, you're sort of combining several different parts of the world together, and I guess that you know would kind of make sense, but I don't, yeah, I, I'm confused. <laughs> Keith David wants Somni to become the figurehead of their revolution. She hesitates, but he tells Haicho to show her the eventual fate of her sisters before she makes up her mind. As it turns out, when they are ascended on the, after their 12-year contract, the fabricants are taken to a sort of modern slaughtering yard where they are processed into liquid protein that they are then fed every day. Ooh. Yep, and that's actually, it's hinted at uh, jokingly in the previous story where I think uh, he at one point jokes like, Soylent Green is people, which is a, <laughs> a, a nice foreshadowing of this moment. So she and Haicho have a carnal night together before they go out to the Rebellion Broadcast Center, 
where they all defend Somni as she sends out a half-hour message of unity to the world. Her revelation. Very, very Star Wars Rogue One. She quotes Solshine. I was going to butcher this name a lot, I'm sorry. I'm not entirely sure even what, where he's from, but I have trouble with these names. <laughs> from womb to tomb, we are all bound to others, past and present, and by each crime and every kindness, we birth our future. The army eventually gets through, killing all of the revolutionaries and capturing her. After her interview with the archivist, Somni is taken away to be executed, just like all fabricants are. But she turns to the archivist at the end, knowing she changed at least one mind with her sacrifice. So I thought it was a... I liked that moment as well. It was a very, a very powerful moment, and just, just seeing that scene. Well, why'd you do it if, you don't, if you're not going to change anything? Well, I think you already have. Finally, we are 106 winters after the fall, which according to other research is about 2321. Ah, gotcha. I was going to say, like, oh, otherwise known as, you know, 2020. (laughs) 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 Too real, too real. Tom Hanks is playing Zachary, and Halle Berry is playing Mirinum. Mirinum. I couldn't pronounce that either. Yeah. Mirinum? I'm probably going to call her Miriam, but that's not what they say. (laughs) But it's easier to pronounce. I think you'll be forgiven on name pronunciations with this particular story. Years after some sort of apocalypse, Zachary lives with a small tribe of valley people in Hawaii. He's watching his brother-in-law and nephew honor a grave, and he witnesses a hallucination of Hugo Weaving as their devil that they call Old Georgie. Hugo Weaving? (laughs) Being evil again? (laughs) Reminds me of, uh, you know, I I think it's uh, old, uh, like, Hindu or Jainist uh, sort of uh, beliefs where you know, as part of the re- reincarnation cycle, you could potentially be reincarnated as like a like an actual literal demon if you were you know, were bad enough. So, eh, definitely fits that bill. <laughs> and I will say, uh, he is suitably creepy in every appearance he makes in the story. I love, I, I actually really love how they shoot him, where he's largely uh, out of focus in the background mm-hmm. as sort of this like specter. Uh, and it, it's just it's every time he's on screen, it's a uh, it's a really fascinating watch and just suitably like just sends chills down my spine. Yeah, and they like they change the camera angle and it's like a close up of, of uh, Zachary from one angle and then flip to a different angle where you know it's not even like a second later and he's in he's in the uh, the background of both of these shots and it's like he's just sort of everywhere. They do a good job with the visualizations on him. I have some critiques of the character which I'll get to yes, later. Yes, yes, for sure, for sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, he's I. I I particularly just enjoy in that visualization. He gives Zachary a warning of an approaching tribe of cannibals, allowing him to hide while they kill the other members of his family. This leaves him a little bit outcast from the rest of the village, except by his niece who stays by him because apparently his sister told her to keep an eye on him. Everyone you know has been killed. Sorry. Um, um, We'll kind of pay attention to you. As he watches the village goats, he sees a futuristic ship approaching. This is apparently the prescience of people who still have the technology lost to the rest of humanity and come to visit their village about twice a year. This brings Miriam to the village. Everyone except Zachary is infatuated with her. Later, though, Zachary has a weird sort of dream thing that involves all of the previous (laughs) timelines. The montage strikes. (laughs) 
as one has, you know. I will say, I do like the scene right before this where he's, uh, where everyone's just like, oh, how does your ship's work? Fusion engines. And he's like, no one bothered to ask what fusion engines even were. But <laughs> Yeah, it is kind of good because they just are like, how's this work? Oh, fusion. Oh, fusion. Yes. Mm, yes of course. Yes, yes. Fusion. <laughs> yes, yes. I totally understand that. It's a great, great little scene. Zachary seeks out Susan Sarandon as the village elder who has a future vision she has like a seizure and super accurate future vision she gives zachary three predictions and tells him to trust in their god somni wait a moment oh wait a moment somni you're here as well and you have someone who's predicting the future like vivian holy crap it's all come together man it's like that moment in uh the hangover where zach alifanex is like putting all the <laughs> the pieces together where's my chart <laughs> Miriam contacts her ship to report that she's found evidence that the island's mountain is what they've been looking for, a way to possibly contact the long-lost off-world colonies, which were actually talked about in Somni's timeline as well. Yes, the, the 12 states and the off-world colonies were mentioned. But you could, uh, if, you're, if you're one of those people that likes to have uh, connecting stories, you could also just say, like, oh, this is in the Blade Runner timeline. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of works, actually, in a weird way. Yeah, actually. <laughs> because everybody copies uh, Asimov's old spacer stuff. Yeah, that is true. The valley people, however, are very superstitious about the mountain and believe the devil lives there, so she can't find a guide. She approaches Zachary about her need of someone to take her up the mountain and almost falls off of a broken bridge, as the voiceover reminds us this was the first of Susan Sarandon's future predictions. She also told him to hide, which they do just in time to avoid a patrol of cannibals. The Kona are the, the name of these cannibals. And their chief, guess who their chief is? <laughs> is it uh, Hugo Weaving? No, no, dang it. <laughs> it's the other H name, Hugh, Hugh Grant. Grant. <laughs> he does have a huge mouth. Apologies to Hugh Grant. It's the only time he's not just being awkwardly British. True. This accurate future seeing stuff freaks out Zachary a bit. But Susan Sarandon quotes him Somni's holy book, Our Lives Are Not Our Own, From Womb to Tomb We Are Connected to Other People. It's a good line. Yeah. <laughs> Soon after, a girl in the village is stung by a fish, which, you know, that can happen now. Don't go barefoot on the beach. And the valley people have no cure for this. Zachary bargains with Miriam that if she uses her future medicine to save the girl, which is apparently forbidden by their society and their Starfleet-esque non-interference doctrine that he will guide her up the cursed mountain. Which I do wonder, uh, it's a lot about what the Star Trek influence is on that, because that, that really serves no tangible purpose. Like, why wouldn't they? Uh... I know, you're here to trade and stuff anyway, so. Yeah, it's like they, they know you exist. You're talking about fusion engines, so why is that a, why is that a problem? You know, so it's, it seems like a bit of a yada yada, yes, Star Trek did it, so we'll do it too sort of thing. Yeah, a little, a little bit. bit, yeah. Traveling together, Marion tells Zachary what she knows about the past and the fall, which was caused by the old ones despite all of their advanced technology because they had an insatiable hunger for more that overwhelmed all things. It's almost as if it's a capitalist critique. Consumers overconsumed, it seems. Mm. They continue on, eventually reaching a vertical face which they climb with Marion's future ropes. Just like the bridges, <laughs> it's the same, same off-brand technology. One of the ropes lets loose, and Zachary winds up grabbing it and holding her as Hugo Devil tries to prompt him into letting her go, as far as I can tell for no particular reason. 
But he remembers the second prediction and pulls her up, letting them reach the top of the mountain. Second being, hands a-bleeding, don't let go. It's like those prophecies that's just like, you're pointless until like the exact moment you need them. <laughs> yep. Those are my favorite kinds of prophecies. <laughs> they reach the top of the mountain, which is a large observatory-type building filled with hundreds of mummified bodies. They seem unhappy. <laughs> Zachary sees a statue of Somni and is surprised that the old ones would have worshipped his god. Miriam explains that she was not a god, but a woman who lived a sad and horrible life and died trying <laughs> to change the world. <laughs> I mean, not, not inaccurate, but... Uh... But yeah, kind of dark. This upsets Hugo Devil, who wants Zachary to kill her for sacrilege, and also maybe because he finds her hot. Hugo Devil's motivations here are not very well established. Yeah, I, I sort of interpret it as that uh, old Georgie was like, you're only, you know, uh, working with her uh, because you find her hot. But, you know, maybe we should, you know, resist her. You know, they might be trying to form some sort of invasion or something like that. So, we, so you can't let your, 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 your thing with your dick. Stop it, guy. Ah, killer! Yeah, I, I kind of read, I mean, this is probably larger discussion stuff, but I, I always read the Hugo Weaving character, like, I know there's some sort of thing where it's, like, a like a soul, re, soul version of Hugo Weaving, but I always read it as kind of like Zachary's inner anxiety and, and depression sort of going on, that's sort of been given voice by this devil, devil creature, and it's uh, all just kind of a manifestation of Tom Hanks's own anxiety and so he's sort of like oh is it just because I have feelings for her that I uh that I'm I'm willing to sort of give up my beliefs for this woman um and which 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 kind of plays which is kind of why I have more criticism of it but we'll get to that in a minute yeah uh Zachary fights off the devil voices and they use the mountaintop transmitter to send a distress call for earth space lasers they return to the village to find it burned and Zachary's oh. can all killed by the cannibals. He finds one sleeping, and despite the third of these super accurate predictions that have all worked out so far was about not killing his sleeping enemy, he does this. Well, hopefully this is not going to turn out horribly. I mean, it makes sense. I think it's a good one for the, like, you know, free will discussion. Yeah, exactly. And also, um... It plays well after, like, you know, he just sees his entire family slaughtered. I mean, I'd want to cut Hugh, mm. uh, Hugh Grant's neck as well. After this, he finds his niece still alive, but before they can escape, the cannibals return to look for their now-dead companion, which gives away their position. This forces Zachary and his niece to run away, eventually winding up in the same small clearing where he watched his brother-in-law killed earlier. He is about to meet exactly the same fate when Miriam rises up from behind the rock that he was previously hiding behind and begins shooting. With her super future gun and him to aid her, they do defeat all the cannibals despite having a couple of injuries, including a scar on Zachary's face. And, uh, Mionim gets a nasty uh, crossbow bolt to the leg, I believe. The prescients agree to let Zachary and his niece live with them since their village was destroyed. And years later, we're back to where the movie began, with old Zachary telling stories to a group of children. As he looks up at the sky, we see that he also has a comet-shaped birthmark on the back of his head. When he finishes, one of the children asks him where Earth is, and he points out a small blue star. Little blue pale dot. Also, it turns out he and Halle Berry got together, but you saw that coming. Yeah, it wasn't exactly so. You know, they're like grandparents now and all that. I will say, Tom Hanks' old man makeup works here. Halle Berry's totally does not. <laughs> no. 
She looks so <laughs> decrepitly old. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> How are you standing? Well, well they're, they're, they do mention throughout this section of the movie uh, that there's, uh, you know, radiation, things like that, that the prescient uh, folks uh, can't tolerate, but the valley people can. Uh, and so, you know, maybe she just got more exposure and it just sort of ca- caught up with her. Sure, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> well, that was Cloud Atlas. As I hope it made some sort of sense because... Yeah. <laughs> I'm just glad we made it through. It was a quite a lengthy synopsis. Like I said, yes. I'm, I'm very sorry for making you go through all of that. Yeah, this is a three-hour movie, so getting it down to 40 minutes is fine. Our telling it to you in the audience here is not going to be a complete experience. I highly recommend you actually see this movie for yourself so you get the full what's going on here. All the climaxes happen at the same time. All the thematically similar bits happen at the same time. It's not one movie after the other. And no, there's there's some really great like cross cutting like uh, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. There's the bit where like Halle Berry falls in the water, and then there's like other characters that are like dealing with water at the same time. And it's just mm. uh, the the editing job on this is uh, just purely for the editing alone. It's 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 a phenomenal achievement. I know doing all the editing for several shows, I cannot imagine trying to work on this thing. Oh yeah, no, it's it, it would have been, it must. I mean, I'm sure it's a lot of it's in the script, but uh, whoever the editor was on this, uh, we don't have in front of me, but whoever the editor was on this deserves deserves a ton of props. Perhaps even mad props. Mad props, I say, yes. I unfortunately had to leave out a scene because it's not real, as far as I can tell, where um, it's thematically important for Furbisher and Sixsmith's bit, though, where near the end... They are both smashing up China in a shop, which is why mm. I can only assume it wasn't really real, uh, where Forbisher talks about how limitations are things that we only adhere to because we can't figure out how to get around them yet. There's a, there's a lot of, like, really just uh, uh, beautiful moments. And also, I, get, I should say that, like, we, we mentioned in the synopsis that uh, thematic things that tie through and also, like, physical stories that kind of carry through every, every, every story. But uh, there's also just great um, moments where they, they echo to each other. Like, I believe uh, the doctor, the, the composer, um, again, I'm terrible with names, but uh, the guy that Frobisher works for, he has a dream of him, his future self, his future soul, in the nursing home, and he hears the Cloud, At- Cloud Atlas sextet, which uh, then influences them actually making it. So it's just these weird, like, back and forth. It's not just a straight line, but also things echo backwards as well. No, this is 100% unimportant, but it bugged me that it was called a sextet just to tie in with the six stories, even though it's obviously not <laughs> scored for a sextet. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have the theme, you know? <laughs> well, well, maybe maybe the original scoring was for sextet, but uh, any uh, time actually someone played it, yeah, they, they changed it up or something. Mm-hmm. So it's like the edited version. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, I think I would rank this with like my feelings on basically all of the Wachowskis films, which is they did something really, really ambitious, tied in a lot of philosophical themes that basically are like, hey, I'm better than you. Look at our philosophy. And unfortunately (laughs) did make one or two like movie making errors that I don't know how anyone else would have not made given the material. But it's still like, unfortunately, detracts from the film overall, even though they always Mm -hmm. are just masterful at filmmaking itself the story decisions sometimes get a little iffy yes exactly i and like i said at the top like this this movie is you know if i sat down 
and had to pick like what I thought was the best science fiction film. This this probably would not make that. Um, maybe not even my favorite, but it's one that I just I, I always appreciate films that like take big risks and try to do something new. And I'll always take a film that just takes these big risks and doesn't always achieve them uh, over something that's just like oh let's do something you know the same or something a little bit simpler. And so I, I just. That's particularly why I wanted to talk about this film, because I think there's just so much to talk about, both in its successes and in its failures, and I just think it's a particularly fascinating piece of work. In fact, it's kind of a... a, a itself is its message. It is pushing the limits. It is trying to test those boundaries and, and seek something uh, beyond the normal experience. And there's just so many movies. Uh, what, what the Wachowskis are so good at doing, at least it, for me, is they're so good at just making you feel... The emotion of a moment like for, for all their other flaws and you can get into like deep drill down to the flaws there are so many moments in this movie when i when i'm just sit back and watching it that i just i feel uh what they're trying to come across like I, I i feel the emotional swells that they're trying to make me hit um and it's something that like i feel across all of their work especially their their later work like this one and then sense eight there's just so many scenes in that show as well where i'm just like just caught up in in the emotional moment and and the fact that they're able to tie those emotional moments into philosophical uh, ideas is 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 truly a testament to what I think really makes them work. And, and for all their flaws, I think that that is a, a amazing skill for them as filmmakers. Well, I feel like since we do have a lot to talk about, we may as well jump into some of the philosophies since they very explicitly reference it. <laughs> yep, of course. Uh, the main thing that this movie deals with and references several times is a philosophical concept called eternal recurrence or the eternal return which mm -hmm. pops up in a lot of cultures it was a theme in ancient egypt and ancient indian religions uh, the main time we encounter it in what you would traditionally call western philosophy is ancient greece with uh, platonic ideals and his idea of the immutable human soul mm -hmm. So in ancient Greek philosophy, nothing can change flat out. So to get around the fact that stuff obviously changes, uh, Plato had the idea that for people at least, you have you, which is your changing inferior body that's going to fall apart and goopify eventually. <laughs> and you have you, the human soul, or whatever the Greek equivalent was, I don't think soul was a word yet, in which does not change and remains the immutable you forever and ever and ever. And uh, you could even tie it into science as well, where they have the idea of like, you know, energy is not created or destroyed, but merely just changes form. So, I mean, it, 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 it's, it appears in pretty much everything. There is a, a absolute something that is existing and that, you know, may be reflected in reality in different forms, but the, the ultimate essence of it is still preserved. Exactly. Yeah, and you get into a scientific explanation when you hit Nietzsche, because he was still using an old um, version of physics before we had relativity and quantum theory, mm -hmm. where if you have infinite time and infinite space and infinite stuff in that space, it becomes a mathematical certainty that things will repeat exactly infinitely. Though that's also been disproven mathematically, so you know, it depends on which proof you want to go with. Yeah, there is, I guess, sort of interpretations of quantum mechanics that, you know, even with just the vacuum, uh, that that could still be a case in the ultimate long term. Even if, you know, we have, uh, you know, the, the cosmos 
is ripped apart under a big rip sort of situation, that there would be still a minute chance that every single thing could re- be brought back into existence for even just a moment. Uh, and, you know, sort of, a, you know, once again, a recurrence of that, those things. And then quickly destroyed because, you know, the universe is destroying itself <laughs> in the process. But, you know. All this has happened before. All this has happened again uh, for, for Battlestar Galactica fans. Yeah. Just, you know, this, 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 this quantum future version is just going to be a little more confusing about it. Yes, yes. <laughs> I feel like course. since I almost majored in math, I should point out that there is, in fact, just a very simple proof of three wheels that all start spinning at the same time, but are spinning at, like, ratios of speed in relation to one another that even though they are all turning infinitely, they will never return to the same positions exactly the same way again. So depends on which version you want to go with. <laughs> well, way to ruin my philosophy with math, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, personally, I do lean towards the, uh, you know, the, you know, once something is has changed, it will never be again. I mean, for me personally, I I kind of like that. Uh, I mean, it, it speaks to me in that sense of like the, all this kind of recurs and everything will sort of happen again. And that you know, I may not necessarily believe in like one soul. But I do believe that themes keep recurring and patterns keep recurring, and that's that's just sort of for me, especially within human society. So, well, yeah, yeah, yeah most certainly. I, I think uh, uh, to quote, I think as uh, George Lucas here, you know, history might not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Exactly. Well, I think we, it's kind of telling that the story themes decided to start themselves in 1840s when you started with an incredibly exploitive system, like the the entire. Th- overarching theme of this is that like humanity will basically always feed on itself to enrich some while destroying others and that's going to eventually lead to your own downfall exactly and it started during a time period where that was particularly egregious in western civilization and as we've talked about before while all of human history has included some form of slavery uh only the roman empire and then later on the western more modern slave trade could count as like the horrific slavery that we associate it with it now mm-hmm. you know you are our property and we can do anything we want with you it, you know you know we can, you know torture you could kill you and uh you know there's going to be no repercussion for, for us because we have built this system in order that you we are ultimately uh, overseeing you and controlling you and those are the systems that we're we were calling as uh, anyone who listened to our previous roman episode is uh, slave societies where the majority of the wealth of the society comes from this exploited underclass which though we got rid of slavery in most of the developed world uh, is something that especially marxist would argue is still happening just in a more consumerist capital framework i mean that just that's the recurring theme throughout like all of these stories that there are always those systems of exploitation and oppression in in every version of this uh in every story that's been going on um some of it expressly capitalist uh like particularly um science fictiony one where they're in tokyo and then also sort of uh the 19 the halle berry led story the 70s yes the 70s yeah i'd argue that all of it is explicitly capitalist until you get to the fall of society because even in even in your comedy storyline in the middle, Cavendish's brother uh, directly references that he owns this elder care facility because people will pay him a great deal of money to pawn their relatives off on him. Yeah, and also, well, Cavendish is also, uh, he's a distributor. He's a book distributor, and sort of he's 
uh, he is uh, profiting off of you know this critic getting very brutally murdered. Uh, he's directly. Yeah, the, the author goes to jail, and he's just kind of like, "Well, I guess I get all the money then." <laughs> exactly. No, I was trying to square this in my head because I was reading a good deal of reviews for this movie to try to get a feel for things, mm-hmm. and I feel like it it kind of has a couple of competing themes and i can't decide whether they're intentional or not because the overarching story seems to be sort of this almost hopeful thing that through our human connections in this long arc of history will you know wind up in a better place in the end but the theme of the eternal recurrence happening throughout every timeline you wind up at the end with there in space now and it seems like everyone's happy and okay. But the only thing we can conclude from the previous stories is in a hundred years or so, it's all going to be junk again. That's a little depressing. It is. It is depressing. But I, I kind of like that theme. And this is something that I've been, you know, thinking about as someone who likes to talk about social issues and social problems, because there, there tends to be this apathy that gets created that I've, I've seen come up with a lot of people that are just like, oh, well, yeah, that's just the way it is and it's never going to change. And so why bother? And I think for me, what this film is trying to say is that, yes, these systems constantly do appear and constantly get created to sort of exploit and oppress uh, an underclass or whatever you know, class that happens to be at the time, whether it's, you know, people of color or clones or uh, what have you. But it's just as important to constantly fight against that and fight to uh, to stand up for you know those people and it's it's you know there's that uh, you know Martin Luther King quote that I'm, I think is also uh, stolen from from elsewhere but it's you know the arc of justice is long but bends towards uh, justice or something along those lines. The, the arc of history. Arc of history, yes, uh, thank you. To, towards justice. Yeah, and I and you know it's you could say that yeah, it, everything just keeps ending in horrible crap. But then there's also these moments of of beauty and success. And I like that the film sort of ends on this sort of tying together. Of like it doesn't end with all these characters ultimately succeeding. And uh, I mean, there's like moments of success, and c- clearly there's like a hopeful end towards all of these stories. But it's always just the bit right before we see that like we never actually see the full revolution you know we don't see the ending of slavery at the beginning we just see a character going off to like i'm going to join the abolitionists you know we see the clones start to uh rise up you know we get the hints of that and it's uh it's all about like that spark that need that drive to want to make things better is is just as important as uh as recognizing that these systems of oppression do constantly come back yeah i think that's what bugged me a little bit because even with the apathy stuff, I still feel like there's a really good point to be made in sometimes having ideals and fighting for them, even though you know you have very little chance of achieving anything, is the point. Yes. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish that it had been expanded on a little more in the stories, because I kind of got this impression that the themes that the book was going for, then the source material, and the themes that they wanted to put into the movie, being the Wachowskis kind of fought each other a little bit because the book the author of the book comes out several times in interviews and says that this is a book about how humanity is never really going to change and is just eating itself from the inside and they put in these themes of like but also fight oppression and do what you can and i feel like that 
took too much of a back seat, at least for me, even though I think it's a really good point that could have been expanded on a little more. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with that. I, I don't know. I, I tend to like works that make me feel like a, a desire to, to do something at the end. And, uh, you know, like I said at the top of this, this section, there, there are many times with this film where I, 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 I'm able to just dive into the emotion that this movie is trying to make me feel, regardless of its flaws. And the end of this movie just makes me want to like, yeah, I want to go out and I want to, I, I'm inspired and hopeful. And, you know, I think it's, the, the whole film is just sort of laying out how these systems work and, and, and how people sort of get inspired to, to fight back against them. And then it makes me sitting here when I watch the film being like, yeah, I, I can become part of that. And I think, you know, to a degree, there's like a call to action at the end of this film that I think if you had just shown, and again, this this is why it works for me and I can totally see it not working for you, uh, that, you know, just, just showing like, oh yeah, here's here's where they could have succeeded. Here's where they could have, uh, uh, here's how they could have won. Um, it wouldn't have been such a strong call to action at the end. It leaves you feeling like, yeah, I want to go out and, and make that happen. Yeah, they always go through this interesting arc of why each of these characters becomes a revolutionary. Mm. Instead of going to, here is a revolutionary and we're going to follow them through their being a revolutionary. It's all about uh, the pivot point where they sort of go from, I'm kind of going through these motions in my life, this is sort of what I'm expected, to, no, something needs to change, so I'm going to take action. And I also like that there's the, you know, going back to this eternal recurrence idea that it's it's all a lot of their impetus towards wanting change is always informed by the previous story, or at least uh, it has elements of that previous story that sort of informs where they're going and, and kind of ties in this idea. Like, even if we removed the idea of a human soul that just continues throughout this, like a, like a direct, like this soul is this soul is this soul is this soul. Um, which is another thing we can talk about because that does get also a bit muddled in a little bit of in a little ways yeah. by the by the birthmark yeah. and then who's playing who. Um, but even if you took that out and sort of removed this idea of a direct human soul, it's sort of this idea of that human history just builds upon itself and that you know we're always sort of taking from the past to try and and, and inform the future. And yeah, that that works in an oppressive way, but it also works in the in a way of like being inspired towards action, towards towards fighting back. And I, I kind of like that that sort of through line comes through. You know, fighting the good fight on the uh, shoulders of giants in a way. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and it even, this is a point that was made before by some other people, so I'm not claiming to be original, but uh, even the Cavendish storyline, his kind of dumb, like presented as kind of dumb because elder abuse is not something that we should take as comedy all the freaking time and it was bugging me slightly but mm-hmm. his presented as yeah. comic as comedic um escape from this nursing facility is like later used as the impetus for a character to try to enact larger change after the fact and and I, you could even put that as like a meta commentary on the effects of uh of cinema and and fiction to to want to create that that change as well sort of like a meta commentary on what this film itself is trying to be yeah and it's not it's not really explicitly stated in the film but each each character encounters the previous character's writings or art or work somehow and it's always at least mildly fictionalized 
Mm. You know, that's you know, it's another thing I want to sort of you know touch on myself is you know the the, the versions that each character encounters of the previous uh, story is the version that they are being exposed to is not going to necessarily be the version that we're seeing in the movie. And so we could potentially very much, you know, have a uh, whole, whole question of, okay, which part of these are, is being presented as the truth of this reality and which ones are just the impressions of that are, they are being uh, you know, exposed to in the next iteration. It, it makes me think, I mean, to tie it into Star Trek a little bit, because um, why not? Um, of like, <laughs> yeah, of like how we, uh, you know, ag- aggrandize these creators uh, and kind of ignore their flaws or heighten their flaws, d- depending, uh, without recognizing that these people were just, you know, good and bad at the same time. And we just sort of take the pieces of them that inspire us and, and um, make us want more. But then how that can also be ultimately prod- problematic. Like we had, uh, I forget her name, but the, the, you know, Zachary's people view her as a god even though, you know, she ultimately had flaws herself. And I to tie it back into Star Trek, the point I was trying to make is like, look at someone like uh, Gene Roddenberry, who mm-hmm. ultimately was a, a very flawed creator, uh, you know, he, but he did create Star Trek, which has some really wonderful and beautiful philosophical ideas. But, you know, today we tend to be either, you know, Gene Roddenberry was a hack writer or Gene Roddenberry was, you know, the this perfect great bird of the galaxy whose ideas are enshrined and, in, in perfection uh, without like realizing like, you know, he was a flawed man who, you know, made some great stuff, made some bad stuff. Uh, but ultimately in the end, his works inspire people to, to do better for, for the most part and, and, you know, and take from that what you will. It's, it's easier to, you know, uh, argue about the ideal version of someone than it is the real person. Exactly. That actually ties in. I feel like they might've cherry picked some of their philosophy in this a little with the yeah. with how they have certain characters who are just always evil throughout everything well i found a uh, another uh, alexander solston quote when i was looking up his work that i thought was good and worked for this theme if only it were so simple that there are evil people somewhere inconspicuously committing evil deeds and it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them but the line dividing good and evil cuts straight through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That is, that's a great quote. I really love that. You know, I, I, I like that theme in, in a lot of things. I mean, like a lot of the videos that I do on my channel are technically uh, like, well, the truth is a lot more complicated than it's, you know, good, bad. You know, there's not mm-hmm. a good thing or bad thing. It's like things are in the middle somewhere, and that's what makes them both interesting but also difficult to parse out. and. Yeah, I think that that's, that's part of what's interesting about this film, but also part of the, the flaws of it, because they do kind of present uh, Hugo Weaving as like this, and, and to an extent, Hugh Grant is like this continual evil force that just exists in, inside all of us uh, throughout the, the whole, whole thing. But I think to a degree, it works, especially f- for me in the, the Zachary part. And I know, Gepwin, you, uh, you had issues with it, but I, I, it plays there as like, oh, Hugo Weaving is this internalized, uh, the struggle that's been internalized uh, within Zachary's character, and that I don't actually think that Hugo Weaving's character exists in that in that story, but it's just a, a playing out of Zachary's own internalized uh, struggle with evil and fear and depression. And I think that kind of plays into that whole idea of the good versus evil within us. Yeah, and that worked pretty well 
except for the like i wish they had done any kind of explanation Mm. for that character at all because he shows i thought it was like a good guy for a bit because he shows up and saves zachary from being eaten by cannibals yeah and then later they're like that was bad it's like was it though because hiding was the right decision well if he popped his head out he might have been able to save them maybe or at least have perished alongside fighting against the, the cannibals. Well, that's the but, thing is, like, yeah. I, I get, like, psychologically, you would feel incredibly guilty in that circumstance. Yes. So, like, if they'd explored that anymore, you could have gotten something through that. And when he's, like... See, the thing with, with Hugo Weaving Devil being, like, his internalized um, stuff, I feel like that's accurate for what they're doing but the way they presented it was just a little off for me, and I felt like felt flatter than I wanted it to, which is kind of my criticism of everything in the movie. It's like, I wish you'd handled this better because it could have been good. Yeah, and yeah. when he's doing the tempting stuff, it's like, you should drop that rope. And then he's just quiet. It's like, drop it, drop it, drop it. And then he doesn't. And that's the entire thing. There's no kind of like, you should drop it. It's like, but no, she'll die or whatever. Like, there's no actual discussion. He's just going like, do it, do it, do it, do it do it and then he doesn't and that's the whole thing well my, my sort of interpretation of the character is that it's not necessarily just you know, a pure this is my evil side it's more of the this is my self-interest inside uh and so you know when it's like oh there's the, the cannibals are running i'm that my this part of me is going to say go hide when he's struggling to hold the rope and his hands are bleeding that hurts a lot and so he's you know it's like okay i, I can you know drop it and here are the the excuses to do it just so you know just let her fall you'll you, you'll be fine right uh, and then you know, mm-hmm. later when, you know, he's sort of concerned about, like, oh, what is, they're trying to send a message. What's what's this all about? What's or is this maybe some trouble for us? They never tell the truth. Hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe my, I'm going about this whole uh, situation in a, in a way that's, you know, maybe not serve my own interests here. Maybe I should go and kill her and be done with it. Yeah. And I, I really love that scene with him at the moment where Halle Berry is sort of challenging his religion because, I mean, it, that that scene in particular for me, ties into the whole theme of it. If we read Hugo Weaving Devil as his sort of internalized self-interest, it kind of dramatically plays out what a lot of these storylines have been playing. It dramatically plays out an external, internal struggle that has been playing out externally everywhere else in the sense that, like, this is the moment where Tom Hanks, uh, Zachary, can choose to continue this system of, you know, suppression of knowledge, like, suppressing you know, knowledge and just keep on going with this, uh, this religion. And I almost wished his religion had been shown to be a little bit more, uh, actively oppressive, uh, at times. Um, it's, it's played a little, little less, a little bit more ambiguously. Um, but it's, it's a nice internal discussion of like, he could choose to continue this cycle or actually listen and be like, no, I'm going to allow my ideas to be challenged. I'm going to allow myself to maybe accept mm-hmm. that my views and beliefs aren't aren't wholly accurate. Uh, and I think that that's a struggle that, you know, a lot of people, especially, you know, given today being so polarized, um, that that's a, like a lot of uh, something that a lot of us could learn from being like, oh, it's not just simple as, you know, I'm right, they're wrong. But it's like saying, you know, maybe the, the truth is, is somewhere in the middle. And it, it takes a lot of self-work to say, I might be wrong. I might be making making a mistake here to just uh, preclude any any discussion. The religion thing in that segment was kind of just it had some symptomatic stuff of kind of a limitation 
of the things that they could do trying to tell six stories at the same mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Because you you don't get anything except like, oh, this person who was trying to be an inspiring force for change earlier got deified. I wonder how that happened. Also, obviously, whatever she was trying to do didn't work because, you know, apocalypse happened. Yeah. Maybe it was somebody else's fault for that. We don't know how pious everyone is or how important this religion is to him. Generally, like you don't you have to fill in a lot of holes for it to make any sense at all. And I feel like it kind of I think that's what gets it a little bit muddled when you're trying to work out themes like that, because I think that's a perfectly legitimate reading of like this is him having to question his beliefs. But, you know, what are those beliefs and how do they tie into this and how are they different than this? touching on what you just were talking about there like the flaws of this this piece and i mean kind of just dance around a lot of the flaws too uh just to talk about the theme but this easily could have been you know a five-hour film yeah yeah we could fill in all these gaps just with more more material but and you know i think sense eight to a degree kind of plays with a lot of similar concepts and and works better there because it's a a longer a longer film because that film that series is all about as well, like telling multiple different stories that cross cut and interact with each other. It's a very similar setup that I feel like this is sort of the proto version of that, that the themes that they later are more fully able to flesh out later on. Uh, So it's interesting to sort of uh, draw a parallel between those two shows, but dealing with this work in and of itself, like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of flaws because I think are just born out of the fact that there's only so much time that you can really give to to each of these stories to really flesh out the ideas that they're trying to show. Yeah, which is why I'm not I'm not necessarily leveling it as a criticism at them. No, but it is a it's a worthwhile criticism. And I do think if we're bringing up criticisms, we've been kind of half mentioning it, but there is the makeup thing that mm-hmm. we should probably not ignore at least. Yes. Yeah. You know, so uh, yellow face. Yeah. Yep. To uh, put it the most blunt way possible. <laughs> Everyone in the near future place they call Neo Seoul, which you can only assume is in Korea, uh, every actor is in just, it's not even just bad yellow face makeup, like it's horrifically bad yellow face makeup. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even look the least bit anything. It's like, you, you're, it's like you're wearing a mask. This is the best, best way I can sort of describe it. And I also think... Um... Yeah, yeah, I get like, I get what they were trying to go for with that. Like this again, continuation of souls that transcend, you know, gender and and race. And to a degree, there is also a problem. I think they get away with it because they are transgender, and I I praise it uh, myself. But you know, there is also something to be said about you know guys playing girls as well, and the sort of implication it has for the transgender community when you do something like that. Um, I think it's a little less problematic because they aren't they aren't trans; they're playing women. Um, they're playing cis women. But, uh, mm-hmm. And they do that both directions in this movie because they do have like Susan Sarandon shows up briefly in that section playing a male scientist doesn't have any lines but you know, they do it in both ways. I think Halle Berry also appears in in Whiteface at one point I believe. Yes, which was interesting because like that makeup was good enough I didn't notice it the first time through. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm always like, what did that happen or did that not happen? I had to remember. Yeah, she plays uh, Vivian's uh, wife, uh, Jocasta. Mm, yes. Yeah. And also uh, the, um, the, I'm blanking on her name. Why am I terrible names? The, the, the Asian uh, woman. She also plays the white wife at, of, of the Ewing at the, in the first story. And I did think that was interesting because they have a couple times where they have a 
you know, a non-white character done up in white makeup, and every every time they make them a super super pale redhead. Yeah, the most I guess like the most stereotypical you know ginger white person I guess you could make. Now, uh, Adam's wife, Tilda, was played by Donna. Yeah, Bay. yeah, that's that's what I was. Yeah. Yeah, Donna Bay played the played Adam's wife, and then Halle Berry played Vivian's wife. But yeah, I guess going back to what we were trying to say is, is I get that they wanted to sort of say like, oh, the human soul transcends gender and and race and sexuality and all these things that we sort of place these systems of oppression on. Mm -hmm. Like oppression, like these these systems work based on race, based on gender, based on you know sexuality all these different things but ultimately that doesn't matter because it's just a human soul and we get that through the actors playing different parts and so i i i I understand that and i understand why they wanted to do that which which is why it makes it so complicated because you know it's how do you how do you do something like this without doing this exactly exactly but then there's just the you know the historical implications of of doing yellow face but there's no, there's not even any particular reason that those characters needed to be Asian, the way they were showing it, because it's yes. like future super globalist society. Mm-hmm. And exactly. even if they gave the, even if they like gave them more Asian sounding names, which would still be its own problem. There's no reason they needed to do the makeup on them. Yes, or and, and make it so stereotypical too. Yeah. So I see the. That one I see the criticisms on. I'm like a super cis dude, so I'm not. I don't have the like background to comment well on the yeah, men playing female characters. And I'm. I mean, I'm white, so I mean, there's only so much I can really articulate yeah. about you know yellow face. As so well. for for that section, I'm banging down to some. I'm definitely taking a lot of influence in the research I did from people who are in those communities who had a lot of criticisms of the yellow face in this movie not the least of which was they did that they did like white people playing Asian people but they you know somehow had the wherewithal to avoid blackface entirely mm-hmm. which so good at least they got that but, something right <laughs> yeah I mean that's very very good I'm not saying they should have but it does show an awareness that it would be a problem in one place without the same awareness of it being a problem in another partially good yeah it's partially good and and again this is being couched in you know I'm a white person but I'm also wondering about like the historical basis for that because one thing that I remember reading about and and finding interesting uh was back when Ghost in the Shell was coming out and uh, Scarlett Johansson was playing a white woman uh, who is an Asian character. And there's some sort of meta commentary within the movie itself, but just taking that at face value, that I remember hearing interviews with people who lived in Japan who were talking about this movie, and they were like, oh, we didn't even realize that was, that was an issue, that that was a problem. Uh, because, you know, Japanese culture, just it, that, that sort of, you know, issue of yellow face isn't a big discussion point. And if you look at... Um, anime uh especially like ghost what ghost in the shell is based off of they're usually the characters are played uh are, are drawn to be sort of ambiguous with their racial and identity anyways um but obviously Yellowface is such a you know has such a long historical and blackface even more so has such a long uh really horrific uh legacy here in america um that it just plays differently yeah, those are both Western issues because if you like, if you are in an area of the world that is predominantly Asian, of course you're not going to be dealing with anti-Asian racism. Mm-hmm. 
in the same kind of way. Now you had like in that kind of thing, you have like some similar kinds of problems with like the the way that Japanese cinema like handles Korea, which has a particular history in a exactly. similar like similar kinds of themes. So you can find parallels, just the fact that they aren't the exact same parallels that people try to use to confuse things. Yeah, and so I I, I wonder. It makes the yellow face in this film all the more. I I just saying interesting, even just to use that word, just because the Wachowskis have been so associated with uh, Japanese culture and uh, anime as well. Mm-hmm. Like the Matrix itself is drawing off of uh, Ghost in the Shell and um, Speed Racer as well, and uh, a lot, just a lot of their work is very drawn to Japanese culture specifically. And so it's it's interesting that they decided that they could do the yellow face in this film, uh, having been so associated with that culture and their, or being so, I guess I shouldn't say associated, being so um, inspired by that culture. Yeah, I think it's you know, the right? same kind of thing we've been talking about. Where like, I feel really bad that it detracts so much from the film mm-hmm. because it would have been a better film without it. But yes. I don't think it, I, at least for my viewing, and I completely appreciate people who are more directly affected by this are going to have different experiences. For my viewing, it didn't completely ruin the movie for me, though I completely understand why it would. Yeah. It's creating a sense of unease. And I've seen some theorizing that that sense of unease is intentional, like the way that you have obviously the same actor playing different people and Mm -hmm. the horrific way that they do some of the makeup is an intentional othering so that you will pay more attention to like the overall story arc rather than getting directly invested in each individual piece of it. Definitely a possible possibility, but then, yeah, it just delves into this whole rabbit hole of like, is that, is that very cinematic uh, choice worth, you know, possibly alienating, you know, people in the audience who might be more offended by that? I think this gets into a thing that like, I wanted to bring up a little bit just because it lets me talk about noetics again, which I always love doing. As <laughs> Go <knows>. for it. <laughs> uh, this movie, at its core, is dealing with a pretty simple theme. Like, kind of the basic message that it's getting across is the kind of hopefulness that you've talked about. Everyone's connected, and trying to make things better is a very worthy thing to do. And when you're dealing with these really, really simple things, you get into something that people call like a simple truth, which gets into this interesting field of study called noetics, which is like a noetic sense is when you know something that's very, very simple, but you know it in a completely core kind of emotionally connected way. So it makes it a much more powerful experience than it would if you just kind of looked at it intellectually. So uh, we were talking about uh, emotional connections. So yeah, a kind of prime example of this is like there's kind of the stereotypical thing with like hippie culture where you just have like love is everything, which intellectually you can look at that and go like, yeah, sure, fine. But if you get that kind of revelation that people get through either religious experiences, sometimes kind of drug influenced experiences in some cultures, and you internalize it in what's a noetic way, it becomes an incredibly powerful thing that it just isn't if you were only experiencing it intellectually. Yeah, no, that's that's actually super cool. Because, yeah, I think that that's what the Wachowskis are so, you know, good at, is, like, telling these big philosophical ideas in a way that feels very emotional. 
I think the only one where it's like a lot of pure philosophy is uh, the Matrix, Ma- the Matrix, and especially the uh, the later two Matrix films. But especially in this one, like I was saying earlier, is like I really do feel part of the reason that I love this movie is I do just feel that swell of emotion several times throughout this film and just get so excited and 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 I guess like a uh, euphoric is I guess the best word. That's kind of like its greatest weakness and its greatest flaw in some ways because. When you're dealing with something really simple that needs to hit you with that core emotional message, for me, some of it got lost because I was taken out of it a little bit by a couple of the kind of storytelling weirdnesses. So it's going to be one of those, it hits you really well or it doesn't kind of things. So, so I guess this either working perfectly or not working at all is kind of what, what happened to a lot of the, uh, the critics and things like that of the movie itself you know, in, in total. And so there's very clearly in, in the data this very huge divide between the two where people connect with it totally and it you know and then those it's like ah yeah. I, I lean towards the more connecting myself so <laughs> yeah no and 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 like i said uh earlier i think that this the failures of this film is probably what led the Wachowskis to try and be more direct and in, in addressing those problems in sense eight which i feel is like mm-hmm. very much a response to the flaws of this work. I mean, in that show, the basic conceit, uh, so spoilers, I mean, it's not a major spoiler, it's in like the first <laughs> episode or two, but the basic conceit of that is that there are these groups of people that are able to share uh, consciousness across their bodies. So there's like eight people who, across eight different cultures, like one's an Indian woman, one's an Asian woman, one's a trans woman, one's a gay man living in, living in Mexico. Um, so just tons of different uh, people living in different cultures are able to share bodies and share minds and sort of reach out across uh, uh, across the world. And so that in that, then they're able to say like, hey, look, this, you know, white cop from Chicago is able to then inhabit the body in an, in, of an Asian woman. And it plays less problematically because then you can just have, you know, the white dude just playing the scene as himself, but you get the idea that it's like he's, he's in the body of the Asian woman. Some of the series I've seen was like, um, her, I think it was someone like it was like in prison and they were getting a little roughed up and one of the other uh, people came in and started fighting right back because like they knew how to fight. And so, yeah, I think that that show, not to get too in the weeds on that show, I think that show is just them directly trying to address some of the flaws and problems that came up in, in this film. And like, I think it's like, I think it's a really intriguing and intelligent way to sort of comment on this work. So I, I almost feel like, I mean, this work should be taken in and of itself and discussed in and of itself, but I think it's 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 a worthwhile discussion to anyone who's also seen Sense8 to sort of put it in conversation with this this film. You know, this film is connections over time. That one's connections over space. Exactly. I think you've basically convinced us that we should go watch Sense8 now. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Sensei is fantastic. I, I adore it. There's there's also flaws in that film as well. I think one being the way it's wrapped up and then uh, one where they just... It's this very thoughtful piece, a very emotional piece, and then they have like these really off-putting... Like the violence in it is so over the top that it's it's somewhat distancing. You're like, whoa, okay, that's very Matrix-y. But, uh, so there, there are problems in that show as well, but I think they, they use it as a very interesting critique of this film and, and sort of further push the themes of this film in a way that uh, they just have more time to 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 deal with. Now, we unfortunately could probably keep going with this discussion for another hour, but since this is already a long episode, it's probably time to move on. So if nobody else had anything they wanted to bring up... <coughs> um, um, I do. So, nuclear power! 
we can't get nuclear power on Linz without the physicists chiming in. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's real quick. I, I did want to point out that uh, you, you sort of mentioned the other, you know, uh, you know, anti-nuclear uh, power environmentalist stuff and all that. But a lot of that didn't really uh, become, I guess, uh, super popular until uh, around about the Three Mile Island uh, nuclear disaster, which was which takes place six years after uh, that portion of the, of the film here. So it was sort of, you know, this is sort of a, a, a prequel to that actually thing that happened. So I thought that was interesting. And when did uh, Chernobyl also take place? Uh, I believe late 80s. I should remember the date. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I've just been doing such a deep dive on Chernobyl re- recently because of the show. And I've like got really into reading all those books and it was just fascinating. Oh, you yeah, know, that, that 86 looks like, yes. Which would have then made this entire conspiracy pointless. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, well, they, they did our work for him. I guess our work here is done. Well, you haven't done anything. <laughs> Toodles. <laughs> I just want to sort of draw that, that together there. But anyway, yes, where, where are we going now? Where are we All going right. now? Yes, since this is already a bit of a long episode, I think it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Yay! Hey everybody, welcome to the game show portion of the show, where we tally up all the points, and holy smokes, we got a lot of characters, a lot of points. Hmm, that's gonna be a little hard for me to figure out which ones are gonna be going first here, but I think we're gonna start with this one here. We got, I think, uh, uh, six awards at the moment uh, to be uh, handing out prizes for. So the first one is the Group Project Award, uh, which goes to Vivian Ayers for wanting to take some credit, no, shared credit, no, all the credit for the Cloud Access Sextet. Uh, who's got a prize for a Vivian here? Oh, I think Vivian should get tenure and a buttload of grad students so that he doesn't have to blackmail people for credit. He can just steal credit academically like normal people. <laughs> oh, I I actually have seen this happen, yes. <clears throat> anyway, moving on. Um, assignment Death. This is the prize award. It's going to Atua. For being set to work, you know, that whole plan to uh, the, the rigging and things like that. And, uh, you know, being threatened with death. But also that whole, uh, you know, uh, Louisa going out there to do do what's right and kind of knowing from the get-go that she's probably going to be targeted by somebody. What do they win? Uh, Jesse? Atua should get all of those buttons that uh, Tom Hanks was stealing off of uh, Dr. Ewing the entire movie. Uh, and Louisa should uh, get a nice puppy for her work uh one that hasn't been shot by hugo weaving well uh i i, I think uh the jewelry is available but it might be on an island but as for puppies i think we could all deserve a puppy <laughs> our third prize is the slaver's paradise award which goes to haskell moore his associates and the powers that be in neo soul for you know kind of the obvious reasons also screw those guys where do they win Gepwin? We've been living most our lives, living in a slaver's paradise. Is that the single or the album? <laughs> <laughs> now they win a good old-fashioned uprising, because, you know, if they were doing neo-soul at least, they're going to quite literally start eating the rich, which I know has become a meme, but it was, you know, some old Marxist stuff we should listen to a little bit more than just memify and put it back into the big corporate glob that's become the internet. It destroys hopes and dreams. Yeah, you know, let's not uh, commoditize the, the revolution, my friends. 
Uh, comrades, uh, let's actually, like, internalize this stuff and think about it. Anyway, moving on, the next prize is the I'm a Humanitarian uh, prize, which goes to the Kona tribe for their particular taste in food, and the fabricants, due to the systems in place, uh, being, you know, uh, causing them to have a certain sort of taste in their diet there, uh, in order for them to be, uh, you know, uh, you know, good servants for the consumers. What do they win? They win a lifetime supply of Soylent Green, all coming in juice box form. I think that will be uh, quite on theme for their taste there. Especially <laughs> uh, <laughs> branded Soylent Green, so it fits in with the consumers. So uh, Cavendish brand, then. Exactly. So just modern <laughs> Soylent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Our uh, fifth uh, prize award here is the Show Within a Show Award, which is, you know goes to all the fine actors who starred in the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish, and maybe also large sections of the movie, maybe? What does everybody in those things win, guys? Uh, get one? I think they all win the Best Supporting Actor, Supporting Actor, Supporting Actor, Supporting an Actor Award for just everyone. How did anyone do this? <laughs> So is it like a really small uh, Oscar or the tiniest of Oscars? It's like an Oscar Mushishka doll. <laughs> it's like one of those uh those like toys where you like push the bottom and they just deflate the entire time. So it's just an Oscar that you just push the bottom and it just goes blah. <laughs> <laughs> or it could be like a nesting doll where you just open up the Oscar and there's more Oscars inside just getting progressively smaller. Which fits really well for this movie. Yeah, that would be perfect. But do you get all the bigger ones, or do you have to get get them out to your co-hosts, or uh, co-stars there? Well, there are six of them, uh, so you just get whatever one you, you get in order. That works. <laughs> A sextet of Oscars. <laughs> Our final uh, prize here is the A Single Word Prize, which goes to Adam for saying no to that slavery business, Robert for saying no to his work being stolen and his uh, rights suppressed, Louisa for saying no to that whole suppression of the truth. Timothy for saying no, you can't keep me here, you assholes. Somni451 for saying no to the horrors of the fabricant slavery. And Zachary for saying no to his dark impulses. Also Miranim for saying help with a giant space laser. What do they all win? Uh, Jesse? Trying to think of like a single word to just encapsulate all of it. Uh, the true true. The true true. They, they win, win the, the true true. true. <laughs> <laughs> or or they win that they win that leprechaun's hat, which was uh, particularly enjoyable to watch Hugo Weaving wave around a few times. <laughs> I, I do kinda want that hat. Hmm. <laughs> but now they have it. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe I could maybe I'll give them awards later and I'll uh, you know what uh, you know br- try to bribe them for it. Because I want that hat now. Hmm. Anyway, that's all the awards I got here. Uh, I'd like to thank all the contestants once more for uh, you know putting in a you know fantastic performance and uh, you know uh, you know serving the, you know, the the story and the plots and the and the, the interlaced uh, madness here all really well. And I'd like to thank uh, uh, my assistants here for uh, once again uh, providing some prizes here. And I'd like to uh, you know let you guys take it away. Uh, thanks, Jesse, for more prizes, so I don't have to think of everything. And thanks to all our contestants for sticking around while we humiliate you. We really don't really have a choice because we made you up after the fact. And thank all of you for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Thanks for having me. So that was Cloud Atlas. Thank you for joining us mm-hmm. again, Jesse. Where can people find you and all of your wonderful videos and such likes? 
Well, you can find me uh, at Jesse Gender on all the social media platforms. I'm mostly hanging out on uh, Twitter these days. And then uh, you can find most of my actual work at Jesse Gender on YouTube. So I, I release a new video every single Friday, generally about Star Trek, but not always. The typical theme is talking about social or political issues through pop culture. Uh, so yeah, check me out there. Give me a subscribe. Uh, every little bit helps. And if you want to help, you know, me pay the bills and things like that. You can also find me on Patreon. I, I, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna follow you on the on the Twitters here, <laughs> and go check that out because those videos are how I found you. They are amazingly well researched and done. I was incredibly mm -hmm. impressed. Thank you. Highly recommend. I'm I'm still going through your back catalog at this point, but yes, I'm, I'm really enjoying them. Well, so. I I sound much more eloquent when I have you know a ten page script in front of me that I wrote. <laughs> Well, for our next non-scripted adventure that Isaac and I will have to take on solo, we are going to be moving on to the third season of Star Trek, the original series, after we take a bit of a break to rest from all the science fiction, and possibly after the holidays, since it's too close to Thanksgiving and Christmas for everyone. All the things happening suddenly, everything. Well, enjoy brain, brain. What is brain? <laughs> yes, next time we're going to be covering Spock's brain, widely remembered to be the flat-out worst overall of any Star Trek ever, ever. <laughs> but, uh, I'm going to do my best to make sure I have something good to say about it, you know? Yeah, well, we'll have to see, because we've watched a couple of the best of Star Treks ever, 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 and I don't know if I agree with that, so... I still say Spock's brain is an enjoyable watch if you look through it uh, through the lens of so bad it's good. That'll yeah. work out. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's a lot of original series, if we're being honest. Yeah, but it's better than like Turnabout Intruder, where the message is uh, women women shouldn't lead starships, and that's 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 just the whole message of that episode. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I'll take that over. Uh, I'll take Spock's brain over that one. I think I'll say that for that, you should go check out Jesse's video on the history of how Star Trek handles female characters, which was an amazing thing, and we'll handle that a lot better than we can in this outro. <laughs> fair, fair. Well, thank you for the plug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You rock. Gepin rocks. I sometimes rock. Take it away, Gepin. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that everyone enjoyed. Again, much thanks, Jesse, for adding some color commentary and added things to this video. We probably, I probably would not have watched this movie if you hadn't recommended it, because it's one of those ones that kind of flew under the radar when it came out, even though I was really excited for it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, like I said, it's far from perfect, but one that I find to be super fascinating just to discuss, as, as is obvious. And everyone else can join Isix and I next time when we cover original series episode Spock's Brain. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Spock loses a brain. Uh-oh. <laughs> you have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash drisix, and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. 
you can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>